What I'm concerned about is the reputation of evangelical Christianity and the credibility of the Church of Jesus Christ right now. Poisonous. I'm afraid to fail so I won't try and now my potential has become poisonous and I'm miserable because I'm not living my potential. Happy, successful, fulfilled individuals have learned how to live their best lives now. In prayer, and as plain as day, God put a picture in my mind of a metro uh, bus stop in Houston, in a certain part of Houston that was nowhere close to my The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. We ought to shout about what it shouts about. And the Bible appears more to whisper when it comes to sexual sin compared to its shouts about materialism and religious pride. What's wrong with you people? This is Sparta! Greetings, this is Ed Dingus, and you are listening to The Reformed Rant. The Reformed Rant is a podcast in which I rant about issues related to theology, philosophy, apologetics, the church, culture, and even politics, but from a distinctively Reformed perspective. The Reformed Rant discusses issues going on in the real world and in real time, examines those issues in the light of Scripture in an attempt to help you think biblically about the issues with the ultimate goal of honoring Christ and glorifying God, both in how you think and act in this present evil age. The Reformed Rant is a proud member of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. Check them out at BibleThumpingWingnut.com. You can also learn more about the Reformed Rant by visiting my website at ReformedReasons.com or by checking out the guys over at Reformation Charlotte. You can also leave me a message uh, in the mobile app if that's how you're listening to the podcast. You cannot do that if you're listening on a computer. Finally, you can contact me at edingus, E-D-I-N-G-E-S-S, at carolina.rr.com. All right, today is February 23rd, and this is episode number eight of the Reformed Rant podcast. Today I am ranting about apologetics. Specifically, I'm interacting with an article that uh, Cody Leibolt put up at the New Christian Intellectual on the subject of presuppositional apologetics. Cody has posted a few articles, not a ton, but a few articles 
in the area of apologetics that are criticizing the presuppositional method. He has another article that I'm going to, to get to probably within the next episode or two. And I also intend, uh, after dealing with these articles, to take a little bit more of a constructive, positive approach. Probably positive is not the best word, but a constructive approach in talking about what presuppositional apologetics actually is, what, what presuppositional apologetics is actually doing. It is an area of passion for me. So um, I'll come back to that in probably a couple of episodes. But I want to interact with this article that uh, Jeff Maple sent me um, yesterday, I think it was, on Cody's remarks regarding presuppositional apologetics. Now, I'm not the kind of apologist to toss out other methods. I do think that other methods are problematic. I do believe, firmly believe, that presuppositional apologetics is the method that is consistent with the teachings of Christianity. I think presuppositional apologetics, I'm convinced, is more reflective and faithful of and to the biblical text than other methods of apologetics. However, I have on my shelf apologetic texts written by men like Norman Geisler. Um, let's see, who else? Dulles, who's Catholic. William Lane Craig. So, and several others to go along with that. So I, I do believe that there is in many of these apologetic texts information that is very useful, and I am the kind of apologist that it's going to depend on the scenario, the exchange, the interaction that I'm having with someone, which tactic that I will employ with that person. So in, in my view, apologetics, while it's always important to converse with people and inter interact with people in a way that is reflective of biblical truth, you never abandon your presuppositions. You never abandon your convictions regarding biblical truth. At the same time, I also am absolutely convinced over years and years and years of, of experience and interactions that apologetics is very much situational, right? So we have to remain fluid. We have to react and respond in the moment. I think that that is the point Peter was making in, in the, the great apologetic mandate that he issued. Always be ready to give an answer for the reason of the hope that is in you to anyone who asks. And the questions that they're going to ask and the objections that they're going to make are varied. So if the questions and the objectives, objections, pardon me, are varied, then very much so will be your apologetic. So we have to be ready. We have to be nimble. We have to be ready to, to change and to turn and to react and to respond in a way that is gen gentle and respectful. And so what I want to do today is talk about what Cody Leibolt is doing at the, the New Christian Intellectual because I don't doubt that his goal and, and my goal 
are the same. I think we both want to defend the truth claims of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think every Christian apologist who bothers to equip themselves in this area, in this field of study, has, for the most part, at their central aim, the defense of the gospel. That's what I want. I'm, I'm convinced that, that that is, until I'm convinced otherwise, that's what Cody would want. It's what all of these apologists want. That being said, um, method, apologetic method, absolutely matters. And so I am convinced that our method rests upon our theology. Our theology is going to drive our method. If you want to know, for the most part, now there are some apologists and theologians who have been over the years pretty inconsistent. Somehow they found a way to decouple their apologetic method from their theological foundations. I can't do that just the way that my my mind thinks and operates. Um, my apologetic method, I would like to think, is very much driven by, flows out from my theology, which, which ultimately should rest on sound hermeneutics and good, solid, exegetical practices as I'm engaging the text and arriving at conclusions, conducting investigations, looking at context, looking at uh, the variety of things that we look at as we're doing exegetical research on a particular text, arriving at those conclusions, shaping our theology, and then that, of course, is rippling right into and informing how we do apologetics to not only include the content of our apologetics, but uh, the method as well. So I want to start with a syllogism that Cody Leibolt put up over at the Christian Intellectual. There's a number of there's a number of things that I've pulled out of this article that I want to talk about. Things that I see as problems with what he's saying, and I think a misunderstanding of what presuppositional apologetics really is all about. At least I think. That's, that's, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt of saying this, chalk this up to maybe needing a little bit more information on what presuppositional apologetics is doing. So the syllogism goes like this. The first premise, we know there is a world. Second premise, we know if there is a world, then there is a creator. Therefore, we know there is a creator. Now, first of all, the first and second premises should be um, switched, in my view. I would switch them. I would say we know that if there is a world, there is... I wouldn't even use the word we know. I would say if there is a world, there is a creator. There is a world, therefore, there is a creator. That's the, the proper form for that syllogism. Anyhow, let's move. Let's move into what I think is problematic. Let's just... Pre- Pretend that's not an issue, and let's move to some other issues. The entire syllogism, for the most part, first of all, begs the question of how we know. To begin with, what does it mean to know? That there is a world, and then, of course, what sort of thing does does Cody mean when he says a world? Does he mean an external world? So what, what, what are we saying when we say, we know there is a world? And then the second, of course, problem is when we say that we know there is a world, are we talking about an external world? And no, this is not nit- nitpicking. Um, 
not at all. This is what it is to do philosophy. It's what it is to do apologetics, right? If you're going to make, if you're going to wade into these waters and criticize presuppositionalism, then you'd better know a thing or two about philosophy. And I don't just mean reading a little bit of Aristotle or what other people have said about Aristotle or a reader on Aristotle and a little bit of Aquinas. Okay. So the first premise is, is, is problematic from this standpoint. Christians do believe that there is a world, right? Now, we're talking about the difference between Christians and non-Christians. Christians believe there is a world, but by that, what we mean when we say a world or a physical universe is that we, we mean a physical universe that has a creator who brought it into existence and who sustains it by his power, right? Second by second, every minute of every day, God sustains the world, the physical universe as we know it. Now, unbelievers, atheists, opponents of Christianity are going to reject that view of the world. They're going to reject that interpretation of reality. And this is the problem right off the bat. It is a bad idea for any Christian to just walk into a conversation with opponents of Christianity and think that you agree on something. This is an, and this is one of the okay. So this is one of the frustrating things. Can be one of the frustrating things about engaging unbelievers who are really tuned up intellectually and have given themselves to this kind of thinking. Um, many of them. Part of the problem is going to be that many of them have have given themselves to this kind of thinking, but they're. T terribly informed philosophically. Their acumen is, is not that great, but they're thinkers and they're going to ask these questions and they're going to fill words with content that's, that is different from the content Christians fill words with. Right? So when we say world, we mean the created order, created by God. When the unbeliever or the atheist says world, they don't mean the same thing. They mean a physical universe that came into existence apart from a creator billions of years ago. That's what they mean. Atheists claim to know there is a world, the same as we claim to know there is a world, but they deny that the world has a creator. So right off the bat, we have a problem here with this syllogism. Right? Atheists have more creative ways than you can shake a stick at for engaging in their own psychological self-deception mentioned in Romans chapter 1. It is, for lack of a better term, impressive to listen to atheists gyrate when it comes to their various interpretations of what reality is, of how we know anything about reality, and of what human beings are. And they are all over the map on these things. And it is because they have a moral objection to the existence of God who stands over them making demands of them. This is the description the Bible uh, gives us regarding the unbelieving mind. The second premise, we know there is a world. If we know if there is a world, pardon me, then there is a creator. This premise is only true if one makes a direct appeal to the Christian's epistemic standard, which is the Word of God. You see, the atheists know there is a world, 
but they claim they do not know there is a creator. So this is a real, the syllogism is, is really problematic in numerous ways. And I, I'm bringing this up because I want, I want you to know that as you're looking at sources on the internet and you're looking for ways to equip yourself to engage the culture, you need to really be careful because you're going to walk into sites, you're going to read articles, you're going to hear things, and because you haven't really interacted with things, these things before, they may sound very plausible. They may sound even intellectual and impressive, but when you go into a conversation and you start having conversations with people who are, who do have a little bit of acumen in this area, you know, you stand a chance of getting yourself a little embarrassed. So be careful, right? <clears throat> so continuing, the premise the second premise is only true if one makes a direct appeal to the Christian's epistemic standard, which is the Word of God. And that kind of begs the whole question. That's the whole point of what we're trying to get to. Cody wants to dismiss this epistemic standard and only bring it in after the fact. And you you cannot do that because if you if you do not start here with this standard, you can never get here. If you do not start with God as the absolute final authority for human knowledge, for the intelligibility of human experience, if you don't start there, you will never get there. If that's not your basic presupposition, you're never going to get to that as a conclusion. Your arguments will never get you there. At best, you'll end up in this lake of, of, of probability, the sea of probability. And we'll talk about that a little later. We do not want, we don't want to open that can of worms. So if we make that move, then even if we can get to a creator, this is another problem of some sort. A conclusion that is wrought with numerous problems will never get to the God who is the creator, the actual God who reveals himself in scripture. That can only happen through the work of God, the Holy Spirit, who both reveals and regenerates, right? He also illuminates. So Cody wants us to believe that there is a fundamental problem with presuppositional apologetics, philosophically speaking, that we have our order of being and our order of knowing confused. And at best, this really just muddies the waters. At worst, Cody is demonstrating a profound ignorance of presuppositionalism and philosophy as well. So a good philosophy recognizes that one's ontology, one's metaphysics, and one's epistemology are interdependent. It is a novice mistake to try and separate those two fields, those two areas or branches of philosophy. We, we cannot talk about knowing unless we talk about what we are as knowing creatures. I'll come back to this a little later. We cannot talk about our nature as creatures unless we know something about that nature at the most rudimentary levels. So the attempt to do so proves to be a fruitless endeavor in the end, um, and it isn't very helpful in making you a better apologist. So, you know, duly noted. Let's continue. Cody says... Quote, thus, 
their transcendental argument for God, tag, is correct. It is correct as long as it is granted that the argument is an inference from knowledge we actually have. Now, the problem here is that tag, end quote, sorry, pardon me. The problem here is that tag is not the conclusion of an argument. It is the argument. Tag maintains that God speaking in his word is the ultimate epistemological starting point. Presuppositionalism is not arguing just for the conclusion that some God exists. Maybe this is part of the problem. Instead, uh, or also it is not arguing for the conclusion, let me back up, that theism in general is true. Unlike classical apologetics, presuppositionalism rejects this two-step approach that sets out first to prove that theism in general is highly probably true. It's highly probably true that some God or that God exists. And then from there, to show that Christianity is highly probably true. So if you you take Cody's advice in all of this and you embrace the classical approach, this is where you end up. You end up in that same old probability camp, right? And that is not where Christians want to be because the view that God probably exists, the view that Jesus probably lived and probably died for your sins and probably rose from the dead and that the Bible is probably true or even highly probably true is not a method that is anywhere seen in Scripture. It isn't endorsed by Scripture. And actually, when you look at the flow of Scripture and the authority of Scripture and the assumptions and presuppositions that Scripture makes about itself, it runs counter to the flow of Scripture. It runs in the opposite direction. The idea of probably true runs contrary to how Scripture presents itself to me. You see, Scripture comes to me and imposes itself on me and on you as something that I am obligated to believe, that I have absolutely no right to question its veracity, and something to which I must submit every area of my life. That's how Scripture comes to me. Scripture describes itself as God speaking. The Scripture is God speaking to us. Now, how dare we look at God and question his veracity, question his truthfulness, right? Okay, so the fundamental problem with this approach is not that it isn't intellectually rigorous. There are, uh, there are apologists across the history of the church who have employed, and even Reformed apologists, who have employed this method, and they've done so with a lot of rigor. So I'm not, I'm not throwing off on the method itself. This particular article, in my mind, doesn't reflect uh, a level of rigor that you would you would like to see in an article criticizing presuppositional apologetics. But m- there have been men. Thomas Aquinas is one of the greatest thinkers in the Christian Church. R.C. Sproul was a fabulous theologian. Jonathan Edwards and B.B. Warfield and these guys used. A, a classical approach. And these men uh, certainly brought a lot of intellectual rigor to apologetics. So that's not what I'm saying here. The problem with the approach is that it has 
no basis in scripture. That's that's the <laughs> that's all we need, right? Um, so the objective of presuppositionalism is to make sure that we honor the 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 faith that we are defending by defending it in a way that is consistent with what we claim to believe. We don't betray our scheme. Let's call it a scheme for lack of a better term. Christianity is a lot more than just a scheme, but just picture that in your mind, a scheme. We don't don't employ a method to defend the scheme that is out of step with the scheme itself or inconsistent with the scheme that we're defending. The method that we use to defend the Christian faith has to be, should be, a method that's consistent with the teachings and claims and assertions that we're putting forth. That's the point. And that is presuppositional apologetics' objection to the classical approach. All right. Cody goes on and says, quote, All claims must be justified. That includes claims about the status of knowledge. We are no more justified in arbitrarily claiming something is doubtful than in arbitrary, <clears throat> arbitrarily claiming, excuse me, it is certain. Either way, we are obligated to offer a rationale for a claim we make, end, end quote. Now, comments. The problem with this claim is that it must be justified as well, doesn't it? The claim that all claims must be justified also requires justification. And what do we use to justify a claim? Tick-tock, tick-tock, other claims, right? And what about these other claims? Do they need to be justified? Do they? Well, of course. According to Cody, they do. And what would we use to justify those other claims? Think about this. I mean, just sit back and think about other claims, right? More claims that will require justification ad infinitum. Cody has just landed your apologetic method in what we call the infamous infinite regress. To infinity and beyond! Now, to be honest, I have to say that this reminds me a little bit of the Taco Bell Chihuahua who was looking for the itty-bitty lizard. Well, presuppositional apologetics, Cody, is a little bit more like Godzilla. I think I need a bigger box. Now, from here, Cody goes on to oversimplify skepticism. And this is a mistake, I think, that we want to avoid. Do not underestimate skeptical arguments. They can be extremely challenging if you are not giving them the attention that they are due. And this requires a little bit of of investigation, a little bit of study, a little bit of research, a little bit of equipping yourself to think uh, like a philosopher. And so do not just think you can say they're self-defeating and keep running because the the sharp skeptic will stop you dead in your tracks. At the end of the day, they will end up reducing to um, a self-contradicting position, but it will take some doing demonstrating to the skeptic 
why that is the case. Cody goes on to say, quote, the prerequisite of asking for validation of an idea is that both parties must agree implicitly on the meaning of validation. Validation means showing the facts of reality on which a claim rests. Now, it is this kind of poor reasoning that the new Christian intellectualist is putting out. If this is it, do yourself a favor and find a different source for learning and equipping yourself to engage in apologetics. The assumption in this statement is that one, one, there is just a set of uninterpreted brute facts that are out there waiting for us to discover them. And two, the assumption is that both the regenerate and the unregenerate have the same philosophy of fact. Clearly, both of these assumptions are wrought with problems. Christians clearly do not interpret the world the way unbelievers do. We do not have the same philosophy of fact. And there isn't just a set of brute facts out there waiting for human beings to engage in autonomous human reason and experiment and investigation uh, to, to arrive at those brute facts. So this is a non-starter from the beginning, and I'm kind of surprised to see this in his article. He moves on and says, quote, The one who cannot already affirm that reality is real, let that sink in, reality is real, or that the universe exists and that we are conscious of it, is in no position to ask for validation of any idea because he has denied the standard of appeal. End quote. No, the person has not denied the standard of appeal because that is one of the things that is in dispute. Cody seems to ignore the reality that not only do we disagree on what reality is and how we know what reality is, but especially we disagree on the standard by which we know things. And for some reason, this is completely escaping him in this article. What the presuppositional apologetic method does is argue from the impossibility of the contrary. It takes the standard that the unbeliever claims to hold to, takes that standard, and shows how his metaphysic does not ground his epistemology or his ethic, and vice versa, all the way around. Essentially, it says to the unbeliever that his worldview is incoherent, and that, in fact, only the Christian worldview is coherent. What we're trying to do is step in the unbeliever's shoes and show them that their view on knowledge, their, 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 their epistemology, is not grounded by their metaphysic, and that if reality is what they say it is, then they really couldn't know anything at all. We show them that their views on morality are impossible given how they claim to come into knowledge, their epistemology, and what reality actually is, their metaphysics. That's what we're doing as a presuppositional apologist. Now, it, it drives the atheists nuts. They accuse you of all kinds of things, playing word, word games and so on and so forth. And, and just know this, I encounter atheists all the time. I have yet to encounter an atheist who really understands transcendental arguments and who understands TAG. Who understands, and that means they do not understand presuppositional apologetics, plain and simple. Now, there are atheists who do, 
I'm talking about the people that I encounter out there in the real world. There are guys in academia uh, who are published and who are uh, running around who have a much higher understanding of, of certainly what transcendental arguments are uh, and sort of what presuppositional apologetics is doing. I contend that you really, truly can't have a true understanding of the presuppositional approach unless you're regenerated because the approach itself is grounded in biblical theology. It is the product of sound hermeneutical principles, the product of biblical exegesis, and those things are only truly possible through the work of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit in the human heart and mind. Right, So I'd, we don't want to go there, but that, technically speaking, is, is my position. All right, so... Getting back to what Cody is arguing here, the standard of appeal has been tossed out by these guys. That is not at all the case. What is the case is that the the opponent does not agree with Cody's standard. He rejects Cody's standard. I reject Cody's standard. He rejects my standard. So what I do is I look for his standard, and then I show him how his Basic beliefs do not comport with the structure of beliefs upon which that structure is founded. He's involved in an internal contradiction. His system is incoherent. This is indirectly showing the atheist that the only worldview that is consistent with itself, that is coherent and that holds together, that has explanatory power, that can stand up under any kind of rational test whatsoever is the Christian worldview. And I, I know I said a mouthful there, and there's a lot of assumptions behind what I said, so uh, we'll save the details of that statement for another time. Okay, Quody goes on to say, Quody, Cody goes on to say, quote, that is the error of the presuppositionalist. He denies the standard of appeal which is observation. He seeks to validate his beliefs not by reference to observation and then inference, but by reference to a syllogism for which he refuses to provide the premises. Okay, so first of all, in quote, first of all, uh, this is false on the face of it. We do, a presuppositional apologetics does not use as its final source of authority its appeal, its foundation, a logical syllogism. Okay. Transcendental arguments take certain forms that you see in standard logic, but they a transcendental argument is not employing propositional logic. Not the way propositional logic works. It's different. All right. A transcendental argument is looking for the necessary precondition for the intelligibility of human experience. It is not a standard deductive argument, even though it might look like one on paper. That is not what it is. And second, um, a presuppositional apologist doesn't anchor his, his as his standard, uh, doesn't anchor his argument to a syllogism. 
the presuppositionalist says that his argument is anchored to the revelation of Scripture. All knowledge is revelational in nature. We know because God knows. We are created in the image of God. We know analogically. Our, our knowledge is analogical to God's knowledge. So Cody has really wandered off of the reservation on, on this one. So the, the presuppositional apologist does not deny the standard of appeal that Cody's talking about any more, a standard of appeal, uh, any more than the naturalist, the materialist, or the skeptic does. Cody is assuming that observation is the final standard and that everybody has to submit to that standard. And for that, Cody will have to provide some sort of ground, some, some sort of backing, some sort of warrant, some sort of justification. Now think about this. If observation's the standard, and that is that is the the creme de la creme, how do we know that? Well, we have to be able to observe it, don't we? Well, can you observe observation? No, you cannot. So we already, even in, in Cody's most basic approach, have what what maybe <clears throat> a philosopher would say is a self-referentially incoherent statement. It is it just does not work. It doesn't even get started. So my apologetics professor Mike Butler, who was whose apologetics professor was Greg Bonson, says this about the standard of appeal. Upon the rock foundation of God's word, the Christian is able to demonstrate the foolishness of unbelieving thought while at the same time vindicate the greatness of divine wisdom. Cornelius Van Til drove this point home. He said, it is this that we ought to mean when we say that we must meet our enemy on their ground. It is this that we ought to mean when we say that we reason from the impossibility of the contrary. The contrary, listen, the contrary is impossible only if it is self-contradictory when operating on the basis of its own assumptions. This is what we're doing. This is the indirect approach, the presuppositional approach. TAG begins, the Transcendental Argument for God begins with human experience like science, moral duty, rationality, love. From here, from this experience, it asserts that God is the necessary precondition for the intelligibility of such experiences. It proves this is the case indirectly by demonstrating the impossibility of the contrary. Let me give you an example just quickly. If human beings are, according to naturalism, if human beings are just their brains, if that's the case, and this is most... most Atheists, not all, most, this is probably the most popular form of atheism, naturalism. If that's true, if human beings are just their brains, if that is true, and reality is this, nothing but the impersonal laws of physics, forces of nature, doing what the impersonal laws of physics or forces of nature do. Everything that's happening in the physical universe is happening because of the laws of physics. Okay, that means then that the entire idea 
of epistemic justification, of rationality, the laws of logic, morality, true knowledge, all of that flies out the window. It means, folks, that when an atheist starts to appeal to uh, the requirement for justifying a belief, you step back and ask the atheist the question, where does this, where does this transcendent belief-forming model come from in a universe that is nothing more than the impersonal forces of nature doing what the impersonal forces of nature do? Aren't my beliefs just the product of or products of the result of the laws of physics? You're speaking as if I have free will, and if I have free will, I would like to know where that's located. If I am just my brain, and my brain is just doing what the laws of physics have determined it to do, where's this idea coming from that my brain should be walking in lockstep with your brain, and the next brain, and the next brain, all of us walking in lockstep to this mythological, transcendent, belief forming model that's supposedly over all of us and that all of us should be adhering to. Where's that come from in that system? You see, that's an example of how the intelli- how intelligibility in any way, shape, or form is completely and totally annihilated by in, in itself by the uh, naturalism. It collapses in on itself. Human experience, rationality, morality, science, all of these things on those basic beliefs of what human beings are and what reality is, collapse. That's my point. If a worldview involves coherence and contradiction, then this serves as a rational defeater for that worldview. It means something is terribly wrong with how that worldview sees reality, sees knowledge, uh, views ethics, or even all three. And that, in, in most cases, it is all three. So that is the first step of the presuppositional approach. The second step, there's two steps. The second step is then to turn around and show the uh, opponent how Christianity coheres and how it actually does account for the intelligibility of human experience in a way that is consistent with itself, right? That's the presuppositional method. That's how we do apologetics. So what Cody Leibolt and many others um, in this classical camp are doing, whether they're young or inexperienced, the problem is that they fail to recognize what they fail to recognize is that the presuppositional objection to classical apologetics is linked to Reformed theology's objection to natural theology. That's really where this comes in. John Calvin wrote, uh, quote, again, it is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. So Calvin would say that only someone who is a true believer and who has truly gazed at God, and we do only do that through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, and as God reveals himself in Scripture, and the Spirit illumines our minds to do so. Only when we arrive there can we say we might arrive at true knowledge of of who we are. So knowledge of self points us up to God, but unless we know God, 
we cannot know ourselves. So what this really tells us then is that knowledge of God and knowledge of man are interrelated and interdependent. They require one another. This is also true of a a person's ontology, a person's metaphysics, and a person's epistemology. You cannot separate these two. It is always a mistake to try and drive too much of a wedge between them because they are interdependent one on the other. Romans one twenty one says that all men know God, even the most depraved know God. It does not say that they should have inferred God from creation, even though they should do that as well. Now, there, I should say one twenty one does not say that. There is language in Romans 1 that says the unbeliever should be able to infer God from creation. But it doesn't just stop there. It does not just say that. It also says that they knew God and that they willingly suppressed what they knew about God and engaged in the folly of self-deception. They knew God, and they know God through the Imago Dei, the image being created in the image of God. Even though that's altered, even though it has been impacted by the fall, it has not been eradicated. All right. So the issue here turns on the noetic effects of sin. In one sense, man's knowledge of God is passive, This is the innate knowledge of God, the sensus divinitatis, as as Calvin called it. We are all born with a sense of of the divine. But there's also natural knowledge of God, propositional knowledge that even the unregenerate can acquire. However, careful, this knowledge is always accompanied by the toxicity of fallen man's ethical objections to a true and personal knowledge of God as revealed in Scripture. So what does that mean? That means that even though all men know God exists, that because of the noetic effects of sin on the human mind and the moral objection to the God that actually does exist, human beings are always going to corrupt and pervert that knowledge, suppress it, deny it, corrupt it, twist it, push it down. And in its place, they will create an idol. And that idol will either be Uh, uh, rationalism, empiricism. It it will always be the product of autonomous human reason. All right. Romans chapter 8, verses 6 through 8, continuing on this theme of the noetic effects of sin and the reformed objection to natural theology as defined by the Arminian camp and as defined by most classical apologists, says this, for the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God for it does not subject itself to the law of God for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 1 Corinthians 1.14 says, but a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God. Why? For they are foolishness to them. And, more than that, he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul said, In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
I agree with Alvin Plantinga when he says the following. This is because I don't know of an argument for Christian belief that seems very likely to convince one who doesn't already accept its conclusion. This is Alvin Plantinga, folks. That He goes on and says, That is nothing against Christian belief, however, and indeed, I shall argue that if Christian beliefs are true, then the standard and most satisfactory way to hold them will not be as the conclusions of arguments. And that comes from warranted Christian belief. One of the most celebrated philosophers in modern time coming from the Christian world. Reformed epistemology is the approach that Alvin Plantinga uses. And I'm not I'm not always on the same page with Plantinga, but I think that Plantinga is awfully close to Calvin. I think he's awfully close to what presuppositional apologetics is doing in spirit. He admits to the noetic effects of sin. His idea of warrant, of justification, is, uh, in my view, having studied Van Til uh, in depth and having uh, read all of Plantinga's works on this subject are very closely connected. They are very consistent with with one another. So look, if you're interested in uh, Christian apologetics, I would recommend that you you buy Cliff McManus's book, Biblical Apologetics, and start there. We do not, according to the Bible, all men know that God exists. They have this knowledge. It is not the case that, that they have a duty to infer God exists, although they do. That's not where their duty ends. The scripture doesn't stop there in terms of how it describes man's knowledge of God. Okay, We should infer God from the beauty and wonder of nature, from the moral law within, from design, from, from all of these, these things as we study the creation. Yes, true. But that is not the extent of our epistemic condition uh, before God. God, according to Romans 1, according to Paul, writing under the inspiration of of the Holy Spirit, went above and beyond that. And he made sure that this knowledge of his being was in us. So much so that anyone who denies this knowledge, anyone who lives their life as, as if God does not exist, is completely and totally without excuse. That's how culpable men are. That's the degree of our culpability before the God that exists. We have more than enough knowledge already given to us by God. And it is true that the unbeliever has moral objections to this knowledge and suppresses that knowledge and perverts it. But those behaviors of willingly suppressing, willingly objecting to, willingly engaging in the psychological self-deception that's going on here are behaviors that they are responsible for themselves. All right? So that is really... Uh, where the presuppositionalist is coming from. So for Cody, Cody Leibolt, Cody, for Cody Leibolt 
to make the kinds of claims that he's making. And I'm, I'm coming over to, um, if I can find his, um, and maybe I can't, his, his statement where he was, he, he made a comment about how uh, a presuppositionalist uh, here it is. He says, on the basis of, of the above, of the argument that I've just walked through, bits and pieces of it, he says, there's no secret, or it is no stretch to say that the presuppositionalist, being a form of a skeptic, literally does not know the first thing about the method of knowledge. He does not know the first thing about epistemology. He is caught in a contradiction of the most embarrassing sort, the fallacy of begging the question. Petitio Principi. Now, in my next podcast, I'm, I'm going to come back to Cody. He has another article about presuppositional apologetics that I'm going to deal with, and I am going to answer this charge of begging the question. This is an old, tired accusation that is unsustainable, and if we were standing before uh, a court of rationality, the judge would say to Co Cody, objection overruled. All right. If you want to know more about uh, the Reformed Rant, if you want to, want to know more about me, stop by uh, my website at www.reformedreasons.com. Uh, you can head over to Reformation Charlotte. Uh, I also have a YouTube channel. There, if you're listening to this podcast in uh, a mobile device, you should have the ability to leave a message, or you can email me at edingus.carolina.rr.com. That's edingus at carolina.rr.com. This podcast is part of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network, Biblical Christianity's marketplace of ideas. BibleThumpingWingnut.com